This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. When a guard would stop and talk to you, you used to stand back and you would yell so people could hear what you were saying to that guard as they walked by or, or within the vicinity. But he knew what a convict was going to do before they thought of it themselves. He'd just been around that long and uh, he was tough. They'd find uh, Sparky in about every conceivable place you could imagine, which we would, of course, dump. They'd wait until everybody was locked up, and he would open his door, run down to cell one, and get a bugler can full of Sparky and take it back to his cells. She had a kind of a hypnotic power. There were a great many wild cats around the penitentiary, and most people couldn't get near them. But she would stand in the doorway of the cell house and say, kitty, 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 and those cats would go to her. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of Stool Pigeon Saturday. Today, we have a return of a very special guest, my cellmate, my office mate here, Suzanne Squires, who's going to tell us a fascinating story that will actually tie into the finale of this season. So welcome to the show, Suzanne. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be back. Yeah. How is your holiday season going? It's great. Loving it. Loving eating, 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 and being outside, and just loving the time off. Oh, good. Nice. Well, excellent. Well, Suzanne, what do you have for us today? Well, this all started uh, when you and I actually had a discussion about looking for inmates who had positive or had experienced some prosperity or positive experience while they were in prison or mm. after yeah. they were incarcerated here. And so as I was looking through some information about Lou Clapp, Warden Clapp, I found this article in the 1945 Statesman about a prisoner who was being released. Uh, He's in the photo with Assistant Warden Paris O'Neill, and he's being pardoned, and it looked like he was off to have a better life, and I was super excited, and I I told you about him, and you were like, hmm, (laughs) let's just take a closer look at this, Mike Donnelly. And so I said, okay, sure. So I'm always, you know, I'm thinking this is going to be great. And as I'm reading a book that I'll talk about in a minute and newspaper articles, I realize, wow. Oh, yeah. So probably not the concept of uh, positivity and prosperity that we had hoped for. But anyway, it's a wild and crazy story. So that's what I'm going to tell you a little bit about his life today. Yeah, I can't wait. I hated to burst your bubble because I was like, (laughs) oh, no, have you looked much more into his life? I know. I know. (laughs) I know. But that one picture just caught my eye. And yes, getting into his life with statesman articles and most importantly, this book, it's called Hunted. It is by Dale cell. Mm -hmm. He lives in North Idaho. And he was kind of got super interested in Mike Donnelly because of um, his uncle, who had told them about their grandfather, who had been part of a posse that was after Mike Donnelly up in North Idaho. And so he and his uncle go out to this bridge where there's supposedly these bullet holes in this shootout and whatnot. So anyway, that led Dale to write this book called Hunted, all about Mike Donnelly's life which is amazing. It's just absolutely amazing. It's about 200 pages. This guy was just everywhere doing all sorts of crazy things. So that's kind of what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) All right. right. So Mike is born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, April 3rd, 1882. 
parents, Ethiopian, Indian, and Irish descent. Interesting. Yeah. And by Indian, do you mean by India or Native American? By India. Correct. Interesting. Yes. Yes. Uh, He's a second of eight children, Baptist family, strict disciplinarians, but that I don't think that's... I'm hoping that's not what caused him his wayward ways. But anyway, <laughs> his dad dies after Mike is about, I think, about 13 years old. Mm. So he kind of quits school, and his father worked in the steel mill. He did as well. He left town for a while, worked on, did some farm labor, came back. And eventually, he really wanted to be a, a logger. So oh, okay. he's got the perfect physique for it. He's 6'2", about 200 pounds, super strong guy, loves being outside. So instead of working in the steel mills, he heads to uh, the Ohio, Michigan area to do okay. some logging there. So he's about 23 years old now. And um, again, he loves being outside, and the whole lifestyle really, really just kind of fits him. In 1910, he decides he's going to leave Ohio and Michigan. He's going to head west okay. where there's some real trees. So he's going to begin his logging career out here. And this is kind of in the area around Seattle, Washington. So his life is predominantly up and down the Washington West Coast, a little bit into Oregon, and then he eventually kind of makes his way into Idaho, which we'll get to later. So he is logging in a a small town in Washington, and he is, it's called Sultan, S-U-L-T-A-N, Washington. I'm not sure it's still there, but a logging community. Anyway... December 23rd, 1910, he decides he's going to go into town and he's going to go to the saloon. So he's having some drinks, celebrating probably the holidays. And as he's leaving, he's probably had too much to drink and he is robbed of what little money he has. Oh, geez. Yeah. That's heartbreaking. Right before Christmas. Right before Christmas and whatnot. So obviously sleeps it off that night, gets up the next morning and decides, you know what? This isn't going to happen ever again. So he goes back to the saloon and he robs the saloon. Oh. Yes. The the one that he was robbed at? Correct. So he goes in, takes what little money there is out of the register, and heads out of town. Thinks, okay, this is going to, I'm just going to get away and going to go on with my Christmas. So he does. And I want to just say that most of his escapes, as he's escaping, whether it's from the penitentiary or as he's, he's escaping sheriff and whatnot, he's, he's incredibly talented. He hops trains. He, he steals horses. He's, he hikes. He has hideouts. He is incredibly gifted as far as being outdoors and eluding the law. Yeah. So it just, it just kind of just continues, and it just is amazing. So after he robs the bar in Sultan, Washington, he hops on a train, and he heads north to an area called Snohomish, Washington. All right? And he's there. So this robbery has just happened not less than a day ago, and the sheriff and People up there already know that he has done something wrong, and they kind of recognize him. He definitely looks uh, different, probably, than the people that are there. He has that Ethiopian descent. He has darkish mm-hmm. skin and whatnot, so probably very recognizable and easy to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. And so the sheriff is like, oh, my gosh, we've got this guy, and they begin the chase. So he's walking out of town, but they're after him, and he runs out of town, and he hops on a train. Huh. Wow. So. The railroad is his is his friend. Narrow escape. <laughs> exactly. And he's traveling north to Seattle. And on the train, he meets a, a guy named Slim. Okay. So now they are together, and they are trying to figure out what they're going to do. And they rob 
another bar and they're hiking and they're just kind of going from area to area, you know, getting by on what with what they could. And they end up back at a logging camp that they had both worked at before in concrete, Washington. It's very interesting. Uh, Dale has um, several maps in his book, and it's very interesting to see where these are because he's bouncing around so much. I finally had to stop looking at the maps because I'm just like, wow, (laughs) this guy is all over the place. Is concrete famous for anything? I just think it was a logging community. Oh, okay. Yeah, (laughs) I know. I'm thinking too. Okay, what's going on here? Are they they making concrete or what? All right, yeah. Yes. So anyway, as they arrive at concrete, they go to the logging camp. There's no work for them. So they're like, okay. So they decide to move on, and as they're walking, like I said, remember they're traveling by foot, walking a lot, they come across a mail drop, and it's a mail drop for the logging company. And they see some boxes there, and they open up a box or two, and they find some new boots. Oh. All right. Okay. So now they've got new boots, and they're probably thinking, sweet, you know, we can continue on our journey. And there happens to be um, a delivery man that works for the logging company, and he kind of sees these guys off in the distance and sees what they're doing and approaches. And sure enough, they'd open some boxes and stolen a pair of boots. So he runs into town and he actually was able to inform the foreman of the logging company there. His name happens to be Wynn Stevens and he's there with Judge Gelbreth. And so they're both like, wow, this is, they're not going to get away with this. We're going to get our horses and our guns and we're going to go after him. So it's like, all right. So they know these guys are headed out of town and they are on their horses running after them. And there's a small little shack and they can see that they're probably in there doing whatever, having lunch or whatever. And so bullets start to fly. And these guys both have guns as well. So Slim and Michael both have guns. Bullets are flying. And the judge is killed. Stevens is wounded. And Donnelly and Slim get away, and guess what? They hop on a train. <laughs> train. Wow. Yeah. So now they're <laughs> headed to an area called Gray's Harbor, and there's a hotel there. And so Donnelly is wounded in this altercation. Okay. All right. Yeah. So they check into a hotel. Slim's like, you go ahead, go in, rest. I'm going to go see how we can get out of here, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's by train or, you know, in this case, they alluded to the possibility of a boat. Now, there's so there's another method of escape, right? <laughs> so we've got all of that happening. So he's off looking for this method of escape, and the landlady, when they checked in, does realize that something's not right. One guy leaves. The other guy didn't look like he was doing very well anyway. So she ends up calling the marshal, and the marshal comes and goes into the room uh, realizes that, you know, something's happened. Eventually, I don't know, he probably heard about it at this point. You know, news travel seemed to travel fairly quickly there. But he does see that Donnelly is um, badly injured. But he is arrested, and he is provided with the medical attention that he needs. And he then is tried and convicted in Bellingham, Washington, of second-degree murder. Wow. So... The judge died right away in the altercation, and yeah. then Wynn Stevens, the logging foreman, does die eventually as well. Oh, man. So, but there's no Slim. I was going to say, what happened to Slim? Slim's gone. Oh. He gets away, and as much as they interrogate Donnelly, he does not ever reveal yeah. his name. And so, I wonder if he even knew it, if they were just kind of, you know, traveling, train hopping yeah. hobos. Hobos, who just exactly. Went without 
yeah, identity. Just, you know, call me slim, call me stout. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Call me whatever, but that's not my real name, right? Uh, Yeah. Yes. So anyway, that is, it's absolutely just crazy to watch these endeavor, his escape attempts and and success at at hopping trains and and eluding people for long periods of time. Anyway, so he is, like I said, convicted of second-degree murder, and so he's in Bellingham, Washington, so he's sent to Walla Walla Prison, Walla Walla Penitentiary, which we know about here. That opens in 1886, so right around the time that we are open here, shortly thereafter. He is, uh, the first thing as, as he enters prison, and each time he does, is all he can think about is escaping. Yeah. How can I get out of here? How can I get out of here? So he does attempt an escape shortly after he is incarcerated. So this is May 1911 when he finally arrives there. Doesn't go well, his first escape attempt. But in August of 1911, he does have a successful escape attempt. Jeez. Yes. So at this time, he is working in the jute mill on site within the walls of the penitentiary there. They were making jute to make sacks probably for potatoes, vegetables, and whatnot. Yeah. Interesting that that jute factory in 1921 in the within the walls of the prison actually turned into a license plate factory. Oh, hey. Like we had here. So yeah. probably jute sacks were pretty pretty much a thing of the past, right? Yeah, yeah. And we are currently down in the trenches recording this episode, and we happen to have a nice little jute sack here. It's uh, Idaho TP brand potatoes that Suzanne pointed out when we got in here. <laughs> hey. Yeah. So <laughs> So anyway, that is, uh, and so in another concept or another thought about the jute uh, mill is it was noted that it might have been the place where uh, Mike Donnelly meets Noah Arnold, your inmate that you will allude to here at the end of your season. Mm -hmm. So his successful escape attempt uh, happens in a dust storm. It's crazy out there. He secures a ladder and he's actually able to go over their 18-foot wall. Wow. So he has no money, no gun, travels on foot, like I said, train cars, begging for food. And just really, this is a pretty tough escape for him. He's not super successful. He somehow eventually, probably on a train, ends up in Idaho Falls. And he is then arrested there. He's in kind of a hobo camp, and he is arrested and released after 10 days. And after his release, the sheriff realizes that he's a wanted man. Oh, my gosh. Yes. So still struggling with, you know, food and whatnot, he then gets on a train and he ends up in Dillon, Montana, where he is finally arrested. He's in a hobo camp. He's arrested there for vagrancy. They know who he is this time. And he is sent back to the penitentiary in Walla Walla. This guy travels, doesn't he? Yeah. 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 And this is still that kind of time period where you can just go into the next town over and start a new life and right. new identity and yeah somehow his his mugshot must have been spreading if if they had one in walla walla right that, yeah. yeah i don't know how how that would have been if they would have been able to do that or yeah. just just again being able to describe him mm-hmm. you know as we've learned in our newspaper articles without mugshots uh you know we were able to just talk about their height their weight yeah. their skin color their hat size, their boot size, (laughs) all those crazy things, yes, in order to uh, distinguish one from another. So he's back at Walla Walla. He ends up spending three months in solitary confinement. And then after that, he has a two-year period of good behavior, which at this 
as, as you'll see later on, that's, that's pretty amazing. <sighs> Two years of good behavior. So uh, his uh, next escape attempt is again with a rope from the jute factory. Maybe he made it. I don't know. Like our guys did with the uh, yarn. Yeah. So he takes two benches and goes over a 22-foot wall this time. So this time he steals a horse, boards some trains, robs a general store, and he is this time going south towards Oregon. So he thought, you know, maybe not so much Washington this time. I'm going to go south. (laughs) So by this time, though, he's on foot which he's very comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And some detectives, two railroad men there, notice him walking, and they notice his prison garb. So they're like, hmm, this doesn't seem right. So they approach him, realize that that he is uh, an escapee, put him in their car, and they're going to take him into town. And they stop at a railroad crossing, and guess what he does? Oh, no. Jumps right out of that car (laughs) and (laughs) runs away. Wow. And this time he meets up with Dale. Okay. Dale who? We don't know. All right. (laughs) So they continue their spree of, you know, robbing, stealing, whatnot. And they end up near Tacoma, Washington. So we're still, we're going back and forth, Mm -hmm. back and forth. And that night around campfire, they'd obviously been noticed. And they were approached by a group of law enforcement. Shots rang out. Dale is killed. And Donnelly escapes. And he then builds a little forest hideout. Wow. Yeah. This is such a cinematic story already. Like, I could see this being made into a movie. This is crazy. Oh, my gosh. Wouldn't that be... (laughs) That would be wild. Yeah. Okay, Netflix, here's your next... uh, (laughs) Here's your next story, your next uh, sequel, all right? So he eventually gets on a train, heads up to Everett, Washington, where he goes. He knows there's a pawn shop there that he's been to before. Okay. So he thinks, you know, I can go in. This guy knows me. I can probably get a good deal, mm-hmm. you know, get my get a weapon and be on my way. And so he gets to the pawn shop, and he's kind of casing it, looking inside, and he doesn't see the man around, but he does see the woman, which is his wife, and mm-hmm. enters the story, thinks, okay, this is, this is great. You know, I'll see what I can do here. Ends up having to purchase a gun, signing for it. With a signature, she realizes who he is and uh, calls the police, and uh, he is taken right back to Walla Walla. Wow. So this la- this escape lasted about three months. Wow. So he is back at Walla Walla, and so this is, this is 1914. And, of course, you know, he goes into solitary confinement for, for, you know, the escape and whatnot. But he is then incarcerated at the Walla Walla Penitentiary for the next 12 years. And it stated that it was probably an equivalent of three full years that he actually spent in solitary confinement. So he was obviously not a well-behaved inmate. Yeah, 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 I mean, definitely. Ours, our inmates that were put in solitary confinement were put there for bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Lots of things, right? All, all kinds, yeah. 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 So obviously he was... Um, he he needed he needed some intervention, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah he needed some some correcting in, in yeah. his actions and his ways right. of thinking, and that's that's difficult. It seems like he's pretty hard headed, and I I, I agree a hundred percent. And it seems like every time he's he's somewhere, he's the only thing he can think of is is escaping and and moving right. on, yeah. getting out. But he doesn't. Once that happens, he doesn't really have any sort of a plan. Mm-hmm to help that be, be successful. So basically then, you know, like I said, 12 years, a total, uh, this, that's 1914. Then in July of uh, 1921, he starts uh, 
applying for pardons okay. and paroles and whatnot. So he's denied in 21, 22, 23, and then finally released in May of 1923. Yeah, so he is said that, you know, he's good behavior. Okay, you have a job, and it's at a shipping yard. Okay. So he's like, okay, this is great. This is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And he gets, and the shipping yard, of course, is in Seattle. So he's released from the penitentiary, and he goes to Spokane, Washington. Oh. <laughs> Starts with an S, but wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> so he goes to Spokane, Washington. And actually, then this is where he meets up with Noah Arnold. Okay. Yes. So not sure actually how they met up in Spokane, but you know, sometimes those type of people just, they gravitate Mm -hmm. toward you. Maybe it was, you know, in a boxcar, maybe it was near the railroad, you know, whatever, but they get together and this is where the crime spree of 1923 begins, which actually brings both of them to the penitentiary here in Idaho. Yeah. So this is in North, we're in North, North Idaho now, Ponderay Hotel. They decide they're going to rob the hotel. And the sheriff arrives, and Donnelly shoots him in the back, but he does not die. And so they take off with what little money they were able to get, and they hop on a train. Oh, jeez. And they go to Plains, Montana. So in Montana there, they decide they're going to rob a bank, the Farmer's Merchant Bank. So this is set up where Noah is the one that goes inside the bank to get the money. Mike is going to wait outside, and then they're going to meet up and be rich and live happily ever after. So they they do go in. Uh, Arnold does go inside. He does rob the bank. He somehow had hired a vehicle. To, so when he came out of the bank, the vehicle could quickly drive him away. Okay. It does. He and Donnelly meet up. Word spreads very, very quickly about, you know, what had just happened. and But they are able to hop on a train again, and they end up in Shelby, Montana. Okay. Wow, right? Okay. So now they're in Shelby, Montana, and they went there because there was going to be a boxing match. Jack Dempsey. Oh, hey, we know Jack. Yeah. (laughs) So we'll probably learn more about boxing here at the Old Penitentiary. Or have you guys already started that? Yeah, in April we'll have our boxing event that uh, you all heard about. Uh, earlier this season yeah. in one of Samuel Anderson's episodes. Yeah. yeah. So they they go there because they figure there's going to be a lot of people there, a lot of people easy to pickpocket, rob, whatnot. And so that is exactly what they do. And then they realize, you know, yeah, this is just so-so. So they come back on a train, and they're in an area in North Idaho again called Hope, Idaho. Okay. All right? So this is where... Um, they get off the train, and uh, this railroad worker notices these guys getting off the train. They have some pretty interesting guns, probably bigger than those type of people should have had. Maybe it should have been a pistol, but they have larger guns. So this guy, this uh, railroad worker, is is alerted, and he's like, you know, I, I need to go into town and let, let people know about this. So Arnold and Donnelly are also going into town. They want to buy some supplies. So they go to a grocery store, and it's after hours. The store is locked, but they see William Crisp inside, the store owner, and his friend, who is a postmaster, James Campbell. Mm-hmm. So they knock on the door, and Chris goes to the door, and he says, you know, we just want to buy some supplies, some bread. So they let the two men in, oh, yeah. thinking, you know, it's very innocent, not a big deal. Well, Arnold and uh, Donnelly see they're counting money. This becomes the perfect opportunity. Mm-hmm. So they pull their guns, and supposedly Arnold was the one that approached Crisp. He hands over the money. He sees a watch on his arm. He wants that as well. 
He doesn't want to give it, and so he shoots him. Things are happening very quickly. Donnelly hits Campbell with the butt of his gun, thinking, okay, I don't know if I killed him or not, but we're not going to wait around to see what happens here. And so they take off, head for the hills. Um, Like I said, Crisp is dead, but um, Campbell does recover. And so they're out for about six days. There's posses, you know, looking for them. Mm -hmm. They actually come across a farmer. They... He's outside. They want some water. They have just a tiny discussion. They know they need to move on. And at this point, they decide they really do need to split up. Yeah. Because they've been seen together in two different places, and obviously it's best that they go their separate ways. So eventually then, on July 25th, 1923, Noah Arnold is captured, and six days later, Donnelly is captured Mm -hmm. out in the hills around Hope, Idaho. And so they're brought into town. The town is incredibly upset about the murder of Crisp, and, you know, they want to lynch him right then and there. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, held and then given a a trial, and they are convicted of murder. Yeah. So that is when they arrive, same year, September 1923, is when they both arrive here at the penitentiary. In the finale, I'll talk a lot more about the the mob that pops up during that point with Noah Arnold and, and Mike and Good. Yeah, so stay tuned for this last episode. Yes. Oof, yes. It's, it's rough. Yeah. Yeah, I can only imagine, you know. Anyway, so they arrive here and begin their stay. And Donnelly goes right to work in the shirt factory. Mm. Okay, so this is 1923. The shirt mm-hmm. factory had probably just recently opened, 1920. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. 1923, yeah. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. So he goes to work in the shirt factory. And again, what's the first thing on his mind? Uh, escape? Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. Oh, no. And he does attempt one. It's not successful. Mm-hmm. And then uh, right away, he's placed in the cooler. Yeah. And uh, released, supposedly after six months in the cooler. He's there off and on, off mm-hmm. and on throughout his time here uh, for his behavior. I believe that if the 1954 maximum security had been open, he would have been a prime candidate for that, just to be locked up in there 24 hours, Mm -hmm. one hour out. But anyway, that wasn't the case then. So he's inside, and he's the ringleader of an an escape attempt that uh, I think you've talked about. So uh, he's in the cooler with some buddies. He's supposedly the ringleader. They try to escape. It's not successful. So again, he, he needs to spend time, you know, Probably in Siberia at this point, right? And and it's the direct result of that attempt. You can actually see where Mike carved his name in the side of one of the cells. Yeah. So you can see Donnelly written there. The result of this escape attempt where they sawed off all of the the hinges to all these doors led to the construction of Siberia soon after. So like, you know, it was probably inevitable that they were going to build Siberia, but I think it Mm -hmm. kind of spread up the process that, okay... Group confinement, group punishment is not working out, obviously. We've right. got a ringleader. We've got this Mike Donnelly who <laughs> coaxed 15 other men in this cramped little cell house to saw off their doors, to rip out the toilets, to make weapons, and potentially hold our guards hostage and cause some mayhem. And yeah. fortunately, they prevented it. But right. It was just a few months after that that Siberia opens up. And right. <laughs> yeah, the thought that goes into that, you know, you're in there, you know, the, okay, you guys, we can do this, this, and this, and this, and the whole yeah. process about, you know, how can we make this a successful escape? Yeah. It's a lot of thinking. Yeah. So he's he's obviously, you know, got a lot going on in his head uh-huh. all the time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, early, the episode on Bob Early, Robert Early, I did, as soon as you walk into the cooler... To the left, you can see on the on the base, on the ground part of the door frame, you'll see Bob Early and his number. And then to the left of that, you'll see Donnelly written along the side of the wall. 
and Bob actually um, named his son Mike Donnelly early. And so I think that he based it off of who later Mike became as a as a fellow prisoner and kind of a wow. beacon of of good and change for a lot of the population here. But, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I I not sure I would name my son Mike Donnelly, but I know. Yeah. <laughs> knowing everything that he's done and everything that he's tried to do. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. That's, well, Ooh. We'll link that photo back on our Facebook page. So oh, good. Check that out. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. After this escape attempt, for whatever reason, he kind of begins cooperating. Mm-hmm. His behavior kind of changes. Supposedly, he paints, like, greeting cards. Oh. And now, I, I don't know. Um, and then he starts doing a lot of reading and, you know, maybe maybe some self-reflection. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. sound like it when I tell you kind of what happens next. But anyway. <laughs> I'd say, you know, because he probably wasn't allowed to work in the Schur factory at that point. Yes, so right. So probably a lot of sell time. And, mm-hmm. you know, if he just has a little bit of money that he made from the Schur factory, maybe he's buying some cardstock. Cardstock, so yeah. So he can paint these cards and mm-hmm. sell those just to make a little extra money right. in there just for extra commissary. Yeah. And we do have we did have good library here, yeah. so the opportunity for him to read oh, good yeah. books, of course, mm-hmm. you know, basically nonfiction. It did say that it looked like he was reading books about um, the Chinese and Hindu practices of oh. probably you know self reflection, calm, you yeah. know, mindful meditations and whatnot. Anyway, and a lot of people think that that or this particular man Dale felt like this might have uh, helped him get through his solitary confinement times. Yeah, there are a lot of programs today in prisons mm-hmm. teaching you know current residents mindfulness and breathing techniques yes. and things. Yeah, that's. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he just does totally not even seem like that kind of person. But hopefully the evolution of, you know, his behaviors and whatnot led him to to be thinking. uh, Patrick Murphy was incarcerated at the same time, and he's reading these other spiritual courses Mm. um, by Salisbury and, like, these these different philosophies about meditation and self-reflection and mm-hmm. getting to your roots and your core sure. of being a human being and like mm-hmm. trying to transform from inward out sort of thing. And right. So I, I bet that, that kind of philosophical aspect was kind of reverberating through the prison at this time with, yeah. with Patrick and, and Mike Michael. Donnelly. Yeah, interesting. Inter- and interesting that we had those books here, you know, yeah. why, why, why would those books be in the prison library? Uh-huh. And how did they get there? Most, a lot of things were just don't weren't they mm-hmm. for the library I mean they, I know they did have small budgets where they could purchase them yeah. and maybe deep down they were you know here hoping that an inmate might be drawn to reading yeah. it and and learning about these practices we'll have to look at the library catalog maybe yeah. we can find what books they were reading like, <laughs> there you go I like cool. it oh that's good another another little down the rabbit hole here yeah, yeah. right <laughs> warden's reports what's what's in here in about 1930. Three begins begins this transition with um, Warden Taylor, who is here and wants to begin more rehabilitation programs with inmates. Okay, so we know that that was probably the beginning of that trend. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so anyway, Donnelly is given opportunities, obviously because of his behavior. To he does some janitorial jobs. He's starting to receive a little bit more freedom. Yeah. And he interacts with a local businessman by the name of James Compton, who is somewhat instrumental in helping inmates who are pardoned or paroled find jobs in the community. He finds them, allows them to have jobs with his company. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so he makes a connection with Mike Donnelly. So in 1937, Mike starts writing, you know, 
to the parole board, you know, wanting to be paroled and whatnot. When this one first happens in 1937, the people of North Idaho find out about it, and they're just absolutely livid. Nope, yeah. nope, nope, not right. going to happen. Because, you know, he's only, he hasn't been in prison that long, and it was supposed to be a life in prison. So, yeah. you know, we all know that they were still had some pretty, pretty deep feelings of uh, what had happened up there. So writing objections and whatnot. So, of course, he's denied it then in 38, 41, 42, and finally then in 1943. Wow. He is given his uh, one-year conditional parole. And so he's 60 years old. Yeah. He's been in prison about 20 years of his life. Oh, yeah. Wow. Just here in Idaho, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And then how many years? Like in Walla Walla, a yeah, in Walla. exactly about so fifteen that's like years. Half his life, almost. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, this is really all he knows, unless he escapes and you know finds things to do out there, which all of them were illegal right. for the most part. Yeah. <sighs> so anyway, his interaction with uh, the businessman James Compton helps him uh, then have a job. Mm-hmm. He's got a storage business and a trucking business. And so this is where Mike Donnelly is working. He finds him a little house. He's making about $200 a month. So I think, you know, then I'm thinking, oh, yay, finally, finally, finally. (gasps) But yes, yes, yes. He does receive glowing reports after the first year. So Governor Bothelson then just go ahead and, you know, gives him his Mm -hmm. final pardon. So he continues working, staying out of trouble, but he's longing, longing for the Pacific Northwest and the trees and maybe the logging business. I don't know if he feels like he can physically do that anymore, but this starts to become part of his thinking every day. Uh, He is making very little money. Uh, He's ranching, salvaging, selling scrap metal. He has a small Social Security check, but then he meets Marcus Russram. So Marcus is not a good influence on oh. Michael. So in, in the meantime, though, he has uh, moved to Oregon. He's moved to Oregon, in the Eugene area. Mm-hmm. So he and Marcus then, they begin their life of crime, robbing and burglarizing warehouses, stealing copper pipe, selling that. Anyway, this, this goes on for about a year, and finally they are, they are both, you know, tracked down, arrested, and convicted of grand larceny. Wow. And sentenced to 10 years in prison. So now he gets to visit the Oregon State Penitentiary. So he's made his way around Idaho, Oregon, Washington. So 10 years. So he is uh, 68 years old when he arrives at the prison there. Mm -hmm. After about three years, he applies for parole and they they say, absolutely not. You Mm -hmm. know, no way. But finally, he is released after about six and a half years. Wow. Yes. And he is released um, 1957, and he actually then does come back here to live in Nampa, Idaho. Okay. Yeah, interesting, right? Yeah. I'm not sure what who he had there, if, if there were people, just it, because he had made friends once he was released from here. Yeah. I don't know the connection to, to Nampa, but this is April of 1963, and then in August of 1963, he ends up dying of natural causes. He was able to celebrate his 80th birthday wow. in April, but then in August he does die. And he is buried at... Curlon Cemetery in Nampa. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. What a story, Suzanne. I know. I was reading it, and I was, like, so stressed out because it's, like, <laughs> everywhere. It's all over the yeah. place. And I'm like, how can I just put this, you know, in a, in a form that it's just kind of, yeah. you just kind of can get a feel for how this guy was. He was just a habitual criminal. Yeah. I mean. It's unfortunate that he couldn't 
correct as right. ways at the ripe age of what's you know like 60s yeah. yeah oh my gosh i know and you know it he never married he never obviously you know married settled down had any children that we know of it yeah. was just that and that was just some, that was just not in his genetic makeup of yeah. settling down and and living a a life that didn't involve crime i think that there's something about getting out of that cycle of thinking that this is this is an easy way for me to make a year's worth of money if I just rob this bank and like mm-hmm. do these little shortcuts here and there. Right. Then and I'll be set. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then But it is interesting that every little attempt, every little robbery escape that he made, he was always caught. Well, those are the ones that we know about. Right. right? Now that's <laughs> true. That is true. There could have been a couple of instances where, you know, he was successful, but it seemed like you know, that three-month period of time was about the longest time that he was successfully able to evade, you know, the law. And yeah. But the only way he could survive was to continue to commit crimes. And we'll kind of discuss in the last episode about why Noah Arnold was led to the gallows Why while Mike Donnelly spent part of a life sentence at the mm-hmm. institution. So That is so interesting, yeah, yeah, to think about that they were both convicted of the same crime murder in the yeah. first degree and why one was executed and one wasn't. Yeah, so interesting. Kind of like our, interesting, you know, like our Walworth and Powell in 1951. Exactly. Which is, you know, this is, you know, like 30 years later, mm-hmm. but they're both executed for that crime. Such a similar crime. Right. Similar situation. Yeah. A store, a store owner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I can't wait to figure out or hear why the sentences differed so much yeah yeah all right well stay tuned everybody okay excellent work suzanne thanks fun again yeah fun again but don't ask me that question that you ask at the end (gasps) you mean what would you say if i said do your own time don't do the crime don't do the crime i like it that's (laughs) that's good finally get it kind of (laughs) no Uh, no (laughs) okay all right everybody Thank you, Anthony. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll talk to you soon. If you enjoyed Behind Gray Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. Not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show, but it helps others find us as well. If you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, follow our Facebook group at Behind Gray Walls Podcast. And we have a podcast Instagram as well. You can find us on Instagram at Behind Gray Walls Pod. 